We will now have the final message of this beautiful Sabbath day by Mr. our pastor, Steve Andrews, entitled, Examples and Admonition. Well, greetings to everyone here and those that may be tuning in to us today and listening to the messages. We hope that you're blessed and instructed, as Ken brought that out. I thought that was very good because I'm going to instruct you a little more today, maybe a little bit more. Um, the two words that are up on the board as my title are found in Paul's writing. At least that's uh, the two that I want to go to in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. And I'd like to read up to uh, verse 11, beginning in verse 1. Brethren, <clears throat> Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized to Moses in the cloud and, uh, and in the sea. And all did eat of the same spiritual meat. And all did drink of the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples. I think in the King James it might say in samples, but that word is actually examples. <clears throat> and um, for those of you for um, what Kim was talking about, I, I do uh, like this easy reader. It does take some of those... King James words make them a little easier to read. Uh, and so, consequently, if you're reading through the King James, you, you might see some differences there. Or if you have another translation, uh, there are, uh, like, he, like Ken said, there are very, there's a lot of translations. Uh, it says in verse 6, Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. So we get some cues in, in these verses that Paul has written for, our, uh, for us to understand. Neither be you idolaters, as were some of them, as it's written, the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. Neither let us for commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them tempted and were destroyed of serpent, serpents. Neither murmur you, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So it's interesting that what we see here is a historical lesson. <laughs> The Bible, and I've been taught this for many, many years, and I'm still not sure whether that's the case because I haven't gone through the Bible and proved that this is history and this is Christian living and this is um, prophecy and that they're all one-third. I've just heard that the Bible is about a third of history. What I do understand, what I do know, is that God likes to remind His people about history. He likes to remind over and over again about history. And so when we come to the Bible to learn, we are given a history lesson. Uh, you go to 
Psalm 78. I'm not going to do it today. It's a long psalm. But what do we get? The psalmist gives us a history lesson. They came out of Egypt. They went through and, uh, the sea. They murmured. God was angry with them. They lost. And, and, and so on and on and on. Psalm 78 explains that. Stephen, when he stood up, what did he do? He gave them a history lesson. <laughs> so history lessons are good. History lessons are important. And if we don't understand history, we're, we're, we may repeat it over and over again. If we don't understand the lessons of history, we will have a tendency to go back and, and do the wrong thing. So understanding history is a very important thing in our Christian uh, walk of life. And of course, what we find in Bible history is it, it is the history of one man's family. Uh, up until the beginning of Abraham, it was uh, several different ones, but from that point on, we see God dealing with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we see that. And I'm going to read something uh, to, uh, that Kim brought out because I, that reminded me that there was a very interesting scripture there because uh, of what um, Moses was standing there and really standing in the breach because God was about ready to take them out. And Moses had a very powerful thing. Let's go to Deuteronomy because I want to, there's a couple of things here. We talked about in this, in this little history lesson that, that Paul gave us, because this is a history lesson that he gave us here. It was on idolatry and, and being tempted and all the different things, fornication and all of that. So let's go back and let's, let's see some original words that are written in the Bible. In verse 12, uh, chapter 12 of, of Deuteronomy would be a good start. Let's pick it up in, in, in verse 28. He says, Observe and hear all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever, when you, go, when you do that which is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. Well, those are, those are good words for us today, aren't they? When the Lord your God shall cut off the nations from before you, where you go to possess them, and you su uh, succeed them, and dwell in their land, take heed to yourselves that you be not snared by following them after that they be destroyed from before you and that you inquire not after their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? Even so will I, I so likewise. I'll, I'll serve these gods myself. There's a warning. Moses was warning them. You shall not do so to the Lord your God for every abomination of the Lord which he hates have they done to their gods, for even their sons and their daughters they have burned in the fire to their gods. What things soever I command you, observe to do it, you shall not add thereunto, nor diminish from him. <clears throat> so, at, at the base of Mount Sinai, they were given this instruction. <clears throat> they agreed. They agreed to all of this. Let's go to to, to chapter 18 here, and we'll see some things. Also, that, that um, that that are warnings about the land that they were about ready to go into. In verse beginning in verse nine, 
He says, When you are come into the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to, the, to do after the abominations of those nations. So, and really, the word abominations means detestable things. God detests what, what they were doing. They, these were kind of a stinky smell in God's nose, and he hated what they were doing. Uh, there shall not be found among you any one that makes his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that uses divination, or as an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch. So, in those nations, there were all of that going on. It sounds kind of familiar uh, for, for what we, we've, we see going on in the world today, don't, don't we? There's a lot of this, this particular stuff going on today. Uh, the passing through the fire is quite different today, but it's still, it's still happening. Um, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of the abominations, uh, the Lord your God does drive them out before you. So he was going to, of course, they said when they got there, they wanted to fight, fight for him. So, but God was going to drive them out. He wanted to drive them out. He wanted to, to take beasts in and, and drive all of these abominations out of the land so that the Israelites, when they came in, they would be in that land and they would in, enjoy the land. Uh, he says, uh, you shall be perfect with the Lord your God. For these nations which you shall possess, hearken to the observers of times, of diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. And we're going to read some, some things about that land there in just a minute. I'll get to that here in just a little bit. But I wanted to read this. I want to fill that in because I, th I always thought it was very interesting that they were down there committing all kinds of sins. God was so terribly upset with them. So and then let's go back to Exodus, the 32 chapter, where, where um, Ken was. And let's just read how Moses stepped in to the breach. How he stepped into that breach. Because he understood that God was working out something through the descendants of Abraham. And here's, here's, how, he was, here's how he said it. Um, I might pick it up in, in verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath wax hot against your people, which you have brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and repent of this evil against your people. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Moses was pretty bold before God. Now, that kind of gives us an idea that when, our, when we come before God and we have some some things that we need to bring out, we can, we can be bold before God and we can ask Him uh, and, and we can actually speak very freely with God because he is, he is approachable, as Moses found out. Remember, and here's, here's the history lesson that, that even Moses 
gave to God. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, here's, he's quoting God, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of will I give to your seed and they shall inherit it forever. So God, so Moses reminds God of what his plan is for his own children, for the ones that he's brought out. And I thought this was very interesting. So the Lord, in verse 14, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. This is very important for us as, as, as children of God. Because when we go before God and we repent, God forgets that sin. Forgets those sins altogether. God repented of the evil which he thought to do to his people. And he went on to, and gave them all kinds of opportunities. And of course we know that the people were so, so impressed with, with paganism. Because that's part of the history that we, we find out. Let's go to Joshua. Joshua has brought them over into the promised land. All these nations now have been pushed out. And towards the end of Joshua's life, he wants to give them um, some understanding and some, some uh, encouragement towards the, at the end of his life. And so here's what he says. This is, the this is I think, the last chapter of Joshua. It may be the next to last. Joshua 24. Joshua 24, and it is the last chapter. Let's, let's begin in verse 1. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of the Israel to Shechem, called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for all their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelled on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. So what's Joshua doing? <laughs> it's a history lesson. Okay, we're going to review. We're going to go back. We're going to understand what God has been doing. So we're going to give you a little history lesson here. And he says, I took your father, and of course he's quoting God, so God's telling to me that I will give you a history lesson. This is what I have been doing for you. I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood, led him throughout all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. And I gave to Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I gave to Esau Mount Seir to possess, uh, to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. I sent Moses also and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them, and afterward I brought you out." And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued after you, fathers with chariots and horsemen in the Red Sea. And, they were and when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And you dwelled in the wilderness of a long season. I brought you into the land of the Amorites which dwelled on the other side of Jordan, and they fought with you, 
and I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. Then uh, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel and sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken to Balaam, therefore he blessed you. Still, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over Jordan and came to Jericho, and the men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites and the Perizzites and the, and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Gergesites uh, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I delivered them into your hand. And I sent hornet before, a hornets before you, which drove them out from before you, even two kings of the Amorites, but not with your sword, nor with your bow. And I gave them, uh, and I gave, uh, and I gave you a land for which you did not labor, and cities which you built not, and you dwell in them, uh, of the vineyards and the olive yards which you planted, uh, not you eat. So God says, I've done all of this for you. I this is this is a history lesson. You are at. Joshua's at the last of his life. And he's reminding them through a history lesson of what God has been doing for his people and how he has, has brought them into this promised land. I want to understand that the history lesson and, the, and, and prophecy go hand in hand, don't they? Because we have, we have prophecies that promise us to go into a tremendously fantastic, wonderful, promised land called the kingdom of God. And we have a Joshua that's going to take us and bring us into that. And we call his name Jesus. But his, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, they're all the same. And Joshua was the one that led his people into the promised land. So we have, we have uh, these types also at looking at how this will happen. So uh, you, can, you can put some of that together. There's a long story there that I don't have much time to, to, to cover because I want to cover some other things today and look at some things that happened to Israel that could possibly happen to us too if we're not really aware because that's what the Bible says. We've got to be very aware. Uh, and he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord. And if it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Or the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites on which the Lord your uh, land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I've always remembered that. I've always from the, from the first time that someone read that, I remember that. Joshua stood up and he said, For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And many of us here, who've lived this way for a very long time, have said that in our own hearts. That we will serve the Lord for as long as we live. And if it seem evil to... Uh, see, uh, uh, verse 16, and the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So, here's, here's the words of the Israelites. 
For the Lord our God, he is that that brought us up out uh, up, and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, and which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in the, all the way wherein we went and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, which dwelled in the land. Therefore, uh, therefore will we also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord. Uh, 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 Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, then he will turn and do you hurt and consume you. After that, he has done you. Uh, after that, he has done you good. And so he's going to correct. We find a whole book called the Book of Judges. A whole book called the Book of Judges, in which God is their leader. He is their. Uh, he is. He is their ruler. And when they sinned, he intervened. And when they repented, he gave them blessing. He, he, gave, he gave them peace. And so. I'm not going to go through the whole book of Judges, but I am going to, I am going to bring out something uh, kind of interesting as to what caused them to sin. And we're going to see that here in a minute. We're going to, we're going to be able to look at what was causing them to sin because in that land, they had not completely driven out all of the offenders. And so there were some that were still there and the Israelites were still human and had a tendency to want to follow these other gods. But I want to continue on here for a couple of few, three, few more verses here. I think I'm, I need to go through verse, I got to through verse 25. And Joshua said to the people, Your witness is against yourselves, that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. Now therefore put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. Incline your, heart, incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God will we serve, and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and set them a, a statue and an ordinance in Shechem. So, now, Joshua died, and, and so we go into the book of Judges, and we know that uh, many things, uh, very strange things happened in the book, book of Judges. But God was, was over them, and he was ruling over them. And whenever they sinned, he took care of it. And so we, we come into, uh, and I went through this before, where they got to the point where they wanted a king. So God provided them a king. But during the time that they were in the land, they were, in, they were influenced by the false gods that were in the land. And I found a, an interesting little short article here. I'd like to read it. It's by Ray Van Der Lan, L-A-A-N. Uh, it was on the cults and the various, uh, especially Baal and Asheroth, that influenced the children of Israel in the Promised Land. And also created a situation in which God Uh, finally had to drive both Israel and Judah out of the land. Uh, so we find that this is the basis of their sins, was idolatry. 
Let me read the article, and then I have another uh, area I'd like to look at real quickly here. Only recently have scholars begun to unravel the complex religious rituals of Israel's Canaanite neighbors. Much of our knowledge of the origins and character of these fertility cults remains attentive and widely debated. What we do know reveals dark, seductive practices that continue to entice the people of God, uh, the people, uh, entice the people God had chosen to be his witnesses, the origin of Judea, uh, Judaism. The people of Israel uh, developed their faith in the wilderness. Abraham lived in the Negev desert where God made his covenant of blood with him, sealed it with circumcision. Moses met God in the burning bush in the desert where he learned the greatness of God's name and received his commission to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. God spoke to his people in Mount Sinai, reestablished his covenant with them in the Ten Commandments. And throughout the Israelites' 40-year journey in the wilderness, their Lord, their Lord accompanied them, protected them, fed them, and guided them to the promised land. There was no doubt that Yahweh was God of the wilderness. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found a land of farmers, not shepherds, as they had been in the wilderness. The land was fertile beyond anything the Hebrew nomads had ever seen. The Canaanites attributed their fertility to their god Baal, or Baal, or however you want to pronounce this name. I'm not sure, but uh, it's, it's, it's B-A-A-L. And so, or Baal, and that might even be it, because they always seem to split it between B-A and A-L. So it could be Baal. Uh, anyway, and that is where the Israelites' problem began. Could the God who had led them out of Egypt and through the wilderness also provide fertile farms in the promised land? Or would the fertility God of the Canaanites have to be honored? Maybe, to be safe, they should worship both Yahweh and Baal. Now, we know that God is a jealous God, so this is not going to work out. So an intense battle began for the minds and the hearts of God's people. The book of Judges records the ongoing struggle, the Israelites' attraction to and the worship of the Canaanite gods. God's disciplinary response, the people's repentance, and the God's merciful forgiveness until the next time the Israelites reached for Baal instead, or Baal instead of Yahweh. Under the kings, the spiritual battle cons, uh, continued. By the time of Ahab and Jezebel, the fertility cults appeared to have the official sanction of Israel's leaders. Now, I'm going to also touch on these two characters in the Bible. Because they are a very interesting history lesson. And I'm not going to go real deeply into it. I would like for you to read about the two of them. Because they're very, um, very interesting how these two got together and how they perverted the Israelites, the, the, the northern tribe. And, by the way, the descendants of them perverted the southern tribe. So, all through this pagan worship. Um, let's see where, see where I picked it up at here. Under the kings, the spiritual battle continued. By the time of Ahab and Jezebel... The fertility cults appeared to have the official sanction of Israel's leaders. Ahab, with his wife's encouragement, built a temple to Baal at his capital, Samaria. All the while prophets like Elijah, which means Yahweh is God, 
Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah thundered that Yahweh alone deserved the people's allegiance. It took the Assyrian destruction of Israel and the Babylonian captivity of Judah to convince the Israelites that there is only one omnipotent God. This struggle to be totally committed to God is of vital importance to us today as well. We don't think of ourselves as idol worshipers, yet we struggle to serve God alone in every part of our lives. It is easy and seductive to honor possessions, fun, relationships, fame, money, and a host of other potential gods. And anything we put in front of God becomes an idol. We need to learn from the Israel's experience and respond to Jesus' command for total allegiance. One way we can accomplish this is to study God that attracted Yahweh's people 3,000 years ago. If we understand the enemy, we can fight against that enemy, can't we? If we understand it. So here's Canaan's gods, uh, Baal, Osteroth, and there's a few other that were there. The earliest deity recognized by the people of the ancient Near East was the creator god El, his mistress, the fertility goddess Osteroth, and gave birth to many gods, including a powerful god named Baal or Baal, uh, which really actually means Lord. These or husband, and it can also mean that. There appears to have been only one Baal, or Baal, who was manifested in the lesser uh, uh, Baals at different places and times over the years. Baal became the dominant uh, deity and the worship of El faded. Baal won his dominance by defeating the other deities, including the god of the sea, the gods of storms, also of rain, thunder, and lightning, and the god of death. Baal's victory over death was thought to be re uh, repeated each year when he returned from the land of the death, underworld, bringing rain to renew the earth's fertility. Hebrew culture viewed the sea as evil and destructive, so Baal's promise to prevent storms and control the sea, as well as his ability to produce abundant harvest, made him attractive to the Israelites. It's hard to know why Yahweh's people failed to see that he alone had power over these things. Possibly their desert origins led them to question God's sovereignty over fertile land. Or maybe it was simply the sinful pagan practices that attracted them to Baal. I think the latter is probably it. These pagan practices which were, um, as you're going to see, a little deeper than, than just uh, going to some meeting somewhere. Baal is portrayed as a man with a hand and, and horns of a bull, an image similar to that as in biblical accounts. His right hand, sometimes both hands, is raised, and he holds a lightning bolt, signifying both destruction and fertility. Baal has, has also been portrayed seated on a throne, possibly as king or lord of the gods. Astaroth was honored as the fertility goddess in, in various forms and was uh, with varying names. The Bible does not actually describe the goddess, but archaeologists have discovered figurines believed to be representations of her. She is portrayed as a nude female, sometimes pregnant with exaggerated breasts, that she holds out, apparently, as symbols of fertility. She promises her followers. The Bible indicates that she was worshipped near trees and poles called Astaroth poles. So that's where the, the um, uh, goal of the, the um, various... Uh, gardens and different things and, and groves and different things were. Baal's worshipers appeared, uh, appeased him by offering sacrifices. Now here's, here is what God told them not to do. Usually animals and such as sheep, bulls, and some scholars believe the Canaanites uh, sacrificed pigs. Um, 
let's see, Israel is participating in the pagan practices of the Canaanites. A time in crisis, Baal's followers sacrifice their children. And this is where we come down to the, to the horrible things that was going on in Israel. The sacrifice of their children, apparently the firstborn of the community to gain personal prosperity. The Bible called these practices detestable. And then that's where I come up with the uh, two scriptures in Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 18. God specifically appointed the tribe of Levi as a special servants in place, in place of the firstborn of the Israelites. So they had no excuse for offering their children. The Bible repeated condemnation of child sacrifice shows God's hatred of it, especially among his people. Asheroth was worshipped in various ways, including through ritual sex. Although she was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. And we, we can even go back in, in uh, Simiramis and, you know, the different things. And so we see some paganism that's, that's involved even way back. Now, believing the, the sexual union of Baal and Astaroth produced fertility, their worshippers engaged in immoral um, sexual things. And, and so it even came down to the priests, uh, even uh, in, in Israel, practicing these various evil things that were going on uh, because of the, uh, of, of the worship of Baal and Astaroth. So we see that, that this was happening in, in, this, um, in these kingdoms. Now, what really, and what has come down through the ages, is a name that no mother will ever give her daughter. And what name is that? Did I hear Jezebel? I hear Jezebel. <laughs> no mother will give it to Because this woman was totally and completely evil. I mean, she was, she was one of the most evil, wicked women to ever exist. But she was married to, to Ahab, the eighth king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, this is out of uh, Philip Comfort and Walter Illwells, who's who in the Bible. Because the chapters that cover this are, are quite a few. Uh, you'll find it in first, beginning in 1 Kings 16, and it goes all the way to uh, 2 Kings um, 8, 11... I'm not sure just exactly where it ends, but there's quite a bit of information and quite a bit of that's going on. But I want to just touch on these two individuals. And mainly, I wanted to read about Jezebel because of what she brought into Israel and how it perverted the whole nation and ending up perverting the nation of Judah. Remember, they were split. So this, this, this is kind of an interesting um, history lesson about what was going on. So he reigned from A74 to A53 BC. His father, Omri, founded a dynasty and lasted 40 years through the reigns of Ahab and his son, two sons, Ahaziah and Jehoram. Omri's dynasty had an impact beyond biblical history being uh, mentioned in, on the famous Moabite stone and in several Assyrian inscriptions. And according to 1 Kings, Omri was a general in the army of King Elah, Elah, son of Basha. When Elah was assassinated, Omri was acclaimed king by his own forces in the field. You can find that in, in uh, 1 Kings 16, 8 through 16. He prevailed in the resulting civil war and occupied uh, Terza and the capital city. 
Soon he moved his capital to Samaria, built the fortifications in the region. Omri also made an alliance with the Phoenicians, as David and Solomon had done, but was condemned for it later by later generations. When Ahab succeeded his father, he persuaded this alliance by marrying the Phoenician king's daughter Jezebel. Jezebel was actually the priestess of Baal, or Baal. She was actually a very immoral person. Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, an immoral and fanatical pagan, strongly affected Israel and had consequences even to the southern kingdom of Judah. Athaliah, their daughter, married Jehoram of Judah, and results of their marriage was disastrous. And you can find that also in 2 Kings. So, um, he goes on about Jezebel, but I want to I turn over to, in this book, to the actual um, focusing on Jezebel herself. And, and it's not very long, so I want to read all of it here. And, and just, just think about this alliance and this marriage and how it just stunk in the nostrils of God. I mean, he, God tried very hard to get the northern tribes to repent. Elijah, Elisha, uh, all the prophets that prophesied, trying to get the northern tribes to repent. And so what does Ahab do? He goes out and measure, marries a pagan, a very, very evil pagan who influenced him and his son and all around her. She became the wife of Ahab. Oh, a daughter of Ethabal, king of Sidon. She became the wife of Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. The marriage was probably a continuation of the friendly relations between Israel and the Phoenicia, began by Omri, confirmed a political alliance between the two nations. Jezebel exerted a strong influence over the life of Israel as she insisted on establishing the worship of Baal and demanded the absolute rights of the monarchy. So strong was her pagan influence that scripture attributes the apostasy of Ahab directly to Jezebel. So you see how she uh, perverted the northern tribe. Jezebel's effort to establish Baal worship in Israel began with Ahab's acceptance of Baal uh, following the marriage. And this is 1 Kings 16.31. Ahab followed Jezebel's practices by building a house of worship and an altar for Baal in Samaria. By setting up a, a pole for worship of Ashtaroth, um, uh, Asherah, um, a campaign was then conducted to exterminate the prophets of God. This is 18.4. While Jezebel organized and uh, supported large groups of Baal prophets, housing and feeding large numbers of them in the royal palace. To meet this challenge, God sent Elijah uh, to prophesy a drought that lasted three years. And remember, um, Elijah and, and Ahab, and there was a, a, a great power that God was had given to Elijah up until the time that Jezebel told him that, you know, he, that she would kill him. Elijah's confrontation with Jezebel and Ahab culminated on Mount Carmel when 
Elijah demanded the prophets of Baal meet him. As they, um, as they and the people of Israel gathered, Elijah issued the challenge to Israel to follow the true God to demonstrate who was the true God. Baal's prophets and Elijah each took a bowl to sacrifice. The prophets of Baal then prepared the sacrifice, called on their God to send fire and consume it. But no answer came. Elijah prepared his sacrifice, had it drenched with water. After his prayer, God sent fire that consumed the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the altar, the dust, and the water in the trench. Following this, the Israelites fell down in tribute to God. Then Elijah directed the people to take the prophets of Baal into the brook Kishron, and, to, and, and he slaughtered all of them. When Jezebel heard of this, she flew into a rage and threatened Elijah with the same fate. In fear, Elijah fled for his life to the wilderness. After all that power that God had given him, you know, I, sometimes you, you wonder, well, okay, uh, also Jonah. You know, Jonah was, was given a commission. He, but he was, he was angry because he knew that they were going to repent. But this was Elijah, a power that he had. And when he said, yeah, you're, you're going you're gonna to die because I'm going to kill you, he flew. Jezebel's unscrupulous nature is revealed in the account of Ahab's desire for Naboth's vineyard. You can look this up in 1 Kings 21. Although Ahab desired the vineyard, he recognized Naboth's right to retain the family property. Jezebel recognized no such right in the view of the monarch's wishes. She arranged to have Naboth falsely accused of blaspheming God and consequently executed, leaving the vineyard for Ahab to seize. For this heinous crime, Elijah pronounced a violent death for Ahab and Jezebel, a prophecy which was ultimately fulfilled. The corrupt influence of Jezebel spread to the southern kingdom of Judah throughout her, uh, through her daughter uh, Ethaliah, who married jo uh, Jehoram, king of Judah. Thus the idolatry of Phoenicia infected both kingdoms of the Hebrews through this evil Sidonian princess. Um, and I'm going to read this one here in a little bit on Revelation 2.20 because God also uses, and Jesus used, Jezebel. And called this woman Jezebel in this church. Now, one of the things that, that, that's not there is an individual by the name of Jehu or Yehu. And it's, it's a funny, it's a little bit of a funny story because um, Elijah is, is told to, uh, to anoint several people, including Elisha. And then he's also, um, there is also this individual that is, um, I think one of the priests, that is to go to this individual called Jehu. And he's, uh, he's a descendant of Jehoshaphat, so he's in the, in the line of uh, kings. But he's kind of a rough type warrior type guy. He's not, he's not the kingly type, he's more of the warrior kind type guy. And this guy runs in and anoints him and says, okay, your job, Jehu, is to kill all of Ahab's family, everyone, and you are to kill Jezebel. You are to get rid of her. And then you are to kill all of the rest of the Baal worshippers. <laughs> so he succeeds in every one of those. And in fact, the prophecies about Jezebel being only a skull and a hand left after the dogs got through with her, came true. They had, the servants actually pushed her out of a window, and by the time they came to look for her, 
There was nothing left. So God wreaked vengeance upon Jezebel for all her evil that she did. And that name has gone down in history. Now, of course, Jehu did what he was told to do, and he got rid of the Baal worshippers. Unfortunately, he didn't get rid of all of the paganism that was in Israel, which was kind of interesting because he, he was kind of an out, out, outgoing, you know, he was a bombastic type to get, get things done. Uh, he didn't get rid of all of it, and, and, and so um, it's kind of interesting that uh, he goes down as also another king that God did not honor. And he goes to the same grave that the rest of the northern tribes go down. And so it's also a very interesting study. Let's go to Revelation, the second chapter. And I'm not going to be able to finish some of the things that I've, I've, I would like to talk about here. But this name has come down. Um, and any time that I see someone that, that is doing the same things that, that Jezebel was doing, I kind of have a tendency to call them Jezebels. And uh, I apologize, but that's just the way I feel about it. Jesus had a tendency to do the same thing. He was very, very frank with the Thessalonians. Uh, let's, be, let's go to um, Revelation, the second chapter, and beginning of verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, not Thessalonica, Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like the fine brass. And I know your works, and charity, and service, and faith, and your patience, and your work, and the last to be more than the first. So, he always honors those with some, some good things. But then he says, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against you. Because you permit that woman Jezebel. Now he didn't get, this woman, whoever she is, this is long past when Jezebel's been dead. So it's the spirit of Jezebel that is working in this woman. This spirit of Jezebel is working in this woman. He says, which calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Interesting that even, even with all the power that God has, He still is merciful and is given and is willing that all should come to repentance. Behold, I will cast her into the bed of them that commit adultery with her into the great tribulation except they repent of their deeds. That's pretty tough stuff, brethren, for this woman that was a prophetess in that particular time in Thyatira. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searches the reins and the hearts. And I will give to every one of you according to your works. Whoa. Sometimes I, you know, I, I skip over a lot of the, these because I, I, like the, I like the good things. Talk about us, you know, being in the kingdom and having all the good things. But I, sometimes you have, to, you, have to, you have to preach some of the bad things because we live in a society filled with people that are like Jezebel, women that are like Jezebel. 
Um, one of the original Jezebels in, in our American society goes back quite a long ways, but it's Margaret Sanger. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Margaret Sanger, but she was a eugenist, and she believed people should be killed, um, you know, because of their skin color or whatever. Uh, it didn't make any difference if they were born uh, with, with different maladies or anything. Let's get rid of them. We don't want anything like that in our society. Hitler actually liked her a lot. <laughs> he, he thought she was a pretty good lady. Um, but her spirit has come down through the time and has affected a lot of women in our society. And Margaret Sanger actually has a Margaret Sanger Award yearly. And you can look it up. I'm not going to talk about who gets it, but you can look it up. And there are more than one Jezebel out there that, that have, have taken that. And, and, and the main area now that, that seems to be predominant is the sacrifice of the generation of children from 1973 onto this day. 60, I guess, uh, I don't know how many, uh, they, they're saying 61 million. 61 million deaths because of abortion. That's a lot. That's a bunch of beautiful children that could have been born. I look at my little baby, my, my grandbabies and all of my, my, my girls, my little grandbaby out here sitting and all my girls and I think, I, I, I couldn't lose any one of them. It would be just so heartbreaking to lose my, 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 uh, my children. And you can imagine God created us. He created us. He loves his children. And it's got to hurt God to see women aborting their baby. Having such a, not having a natural, natural affection and aborting their babies. I was very pleased with President Trump that he came to the March for Life and gave a very short message, but it was a very heartfelt one. And I hope he keeps his, his word and, and, and works towards bringing about the end of this, uh, this tragedy in America, which is the death of, of these young babies. And some of them are very healthy, and, and some of them, are, there are, some people are even wanting to, to kill them whenever they're, uh, they're already born. And that was Margaret Sanger. She said, well, hey, this is, this one, this is defective. Let's get rid of it. And so, anyway, um, I don't have enough time, but I was going to go through what God is going to do to the nations because of the sins of idolatry and all of the different sins. And he's going to pour out his wrath. You can, if you're really interested, you go go into the book of Revelation in chapters 15, 16, and 17 and really read through them and, and really think about what what God is going to do to, to the world. Remember now, we're not talking about, at one time when I was first born, in, in 1948, you didn't have the kind of electronic communications and the different things that we have today. You didn't have the universal communication that we have today. I, I remember the, the first, my first telephone was the, you know, the dial one that you put your finger in and it goes back. And you, and you have, instead of numbers, you have, uh, I can't remember what my house was, but M-U, you know, something. 
kids will say, well, boy, that guy's really ancient. Hey, really ancient. And then it came to the little ones with the push buttons. You know, you got push buttons. You push when you talk. You didn't have anything you carry around with you until they got with the one with a, you pulled out this antenna, you know. And you got, now you can talk on, you can walk around and talk with this one with the antenna. Now everybody calls, walks around with these things in their hand. Universal uh, telephone. I, this is not a local telephone, brethren. You've got to understand, this is a universal piece of equipment. I, I, you could call anybody anywhere in the world, and it might cost you, but you could call anyone in the world. You can communicate with anyone, anywhere in the world. What's happening to the United States and the world today? I'll tell you what's happening. We are becoming a one-world order. We are very quickly becoming a one-world order. And I heard that there's a new app out. And I know that we, we have translators like my brother-in-law. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a linguist, but he, he knows a lot of languages, and he, he can read Hebrew, Greek, and he's, he, he can actually read them and speak them and everything. But now we have an app or it's coming out that you can speak into your phone, American, and if you said it just right, the guy that's in Japan can hear it in Jap Japanese. He can talk in Japanese, and you can hear it in American, or English. <laughs> I, I know there's two differences between American and English, so that's the reason why I said that. Anyway, it, it's becoming more and more a global world, a global society. So what are we talking about in the Bible in the future prophetic things? <laughs> it's been talking about this for a very long time. A global world order in which a, a great beast, a great false prophet, all of these things can come about. Brethren, I want all of us to be aware. I've been thinking about this a lot. And, and these scriptures now are becoming a lot more alive. A lot more alive today. When I first started in the church in 1969, um, they preached a lot about it. They talk a lot about the, the coming. But I, I couldn't quite see it because we were still kind of isolated here and isolated there and isolated in a lot of ways, in a lot of places. But not anymore. No more are we isolated. You can fly, you can get on an airplane, and you can go just about anywhere in the world. Now, you can't land in some countries unless you've unless you want to be incarcerated for the rest of your life. But you can just about go anywhere in the world on, on an airplane, if you don't mind sitting 10, 12, you know, 15 hours on one. And this, this is the way it's getting to be more and more prevalent. And so we are getting closer and closer to the time when prophecies are going to, I don't know where the word, <laughs> I've heard a lot of preachers use the word speed up, but I, you know, God has his own time frame. So I don't know how long that is. But God has his own time frame. But things that we see, the modern technology that's there, all of the things that are getting ready to happen are, are, are going to put this into place. One of these days, though, God's going to look down and he's going to see the idolatry and the sins of the world because it's going to be a worldwide sin. He's going to protect those who are still worshiping God and and believing in Jesus Christ. He's going to put a mark on those who are evil, and they are going to hate God. They're going to hate Him, and they're going to, anything and everything that is preached and taught, they're going to hate it, which I think is even beginning today to some degree. But they're going to hate what God is, 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 is uh, beginning to, to, 
to preach and beginning to do. And God is finally going to have to pour out his wrath on all of mankind because they are becoming so wicked, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, and just like you know, we see things happening in the world. And so, brethren, I want to go back, I want to go back to the the first Corinthians, the 10th chapter, as I finish up here, as I want to finish up real quick. And I want to read these, these words here. And it says in verse 12, Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Now, we don't have to fall if we believe in Jesus Christ. And if we, as, as Kim was saying, we really want to study this word and, and really get down and understand it, we can do that. We can do that. And, and no, it doesn't matter how old you are. We have... Uh, abilities through CGOM and all of the different things. And the Bible itself, of course. The, the first and primary thing that you really want to look at. So, you don't have to fall. But it says, if he thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with that temptation uh, also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Someday, you will may want to turn to the scripture and understand it deeply because we may have to face some of those things. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that that's not the case, but there is a possibility that tests and temptations and trials are going to come on the children of God, and they're going to be very difficult to get through, but God will give us the strength to bear it. And he says, here is something very important for us to understand. Wherefore, he says, he says, my dearly beloved, he's talking to you and I, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. It's all through the Bible. Idol worship. It's in there. And all you have to do is recognize it and flee from it. So that's what I wanted to give today.